The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. We continue our study in Luke's Gospel, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 7 today, and making our way to verse 23. Maybe by now, by the time we've gotten to chapter 7, your Bible's sort of automatically open to, to Luke. About this time in the series, they start to get trained to, to know where to go on Sunday. Luke writes, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who's to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. At some point in our life, as we walk with the Lord as believers, we all deal with doubts. Doubt is a reality, I think, for every believer at some point in time. Maybe you've come here this morning with a heart filled with doubts. Maybe you can reflect on a time in the past when, when doubt has assailed you and things that you once believed, you all of a sudden began to, to question and to wonder if they're really true. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and, and you had embraced what you were taught and then you got old enough to get out into the world on your own and you faced challenges and you faced other belief systems and you faced other thoughts and other systems and you saw the things that were happening in the world and, and all of that or some piece of that caused you to stop and, and really question whether the things that you had been taught are true. I suspect at some point in your life that's been a reality for you. It certainly has for me. If it's not a reality in some fashion now, it has been before. And if it hasn't in the recent past, it likely will be again at some point in the future. We all understand what doubts are like. We all understand what it's like to, to wonder if what we believe is really true. There are certain times in our life when, when, when our Christian faith just makes all the sense in the world. And then there are other times in life when it's hard to believe, when it's not so clear, when the things that we saw so clearly some time before now seem foggy and seem unsure and uncertain. Times when nagging questions start to fill our mind. Is God in fact real? If he is real, is he really in control? 
If he is real and he is in control, is he really good? Does he hear the prayers that I offered him at night or do those things just hit the ceiling? Is the Bible really true in all that it, that it proclaims and teaches or is it just an old book with some, some good moral advice and nothing more? Is Jesus really God himself in human flesh or was he maybe just a good teacher, a good prophet, someone we can model our lives after but not the Savior? The miracles in the Bible, did they really happen? Or is that just an ancient author's way to sort of embellish the Jesus story and make him out to be more than what he really was? Or maybe even more personally, we look at our own selves in the mirror and we ask the question, can my sins really be forgiven? Is there really hope for me? If not those questions, there's a thousand more that can assail our minds and our hearts when it comes to the area of our faith. And I suspect that even as I mention some of those out loud, you could add to the list of the questions and doubts that have filled your heart and mind. And if that's the reality for you, at some point, you're in good company. Many great men and women of the faith in the past and the present deal with doubts. John Calvin said this, he said, surely while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that's not tinged with doubt or any assurance that's not assailed by some anxiety. C.S. Lewis said, a Christian with reasonable faith still experiences times when, quote, his emotions rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief. Can you identify with that? Has there been a time in your life when your emotions have risen up and carried out a blitz on your belief? Lewis said at another time, I think the trouble with me is a lack of faith. Often when I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. What a fascinating way of describing a season of doubt. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in history, said this. He said, it was just when I wanted Christ and panted after him that on a sudden the thought crossed my mind, which I abhorred but could not conquer, that there was no God. No Christ, no heaven, no hell that all my prayers were but a farce and that I might well have might, that I might as well have whistled to the winds or spoken to the howling waves ah i remember how my ship drifted along through that sea of fire loosened from the anchor of my faith which i had received from my fathers i no longer moored myself hard by the coasts of revelation i said to reason be thou my captain I said to my own brain, be thou my rudder. And I started on my mad voyage. Incredibly personal, heart-spilling words from one known as the Prince of Preachers. Who had confessed to you and all who would hear or read that there was a season in his life when he unmoored himself from the revelation of God's word and he decided just to let his mind and his own reason guide him instead and 
doubt assailed his heart and his mind. We could go on and on with quotes from people in history who's dealt with doubts, but I suspect that's sufficient for you this morning to establish the reality that doubt is something that Christians deal with. And we all too sometimes doubt. There's times when our faith falters, when the story of our own salvation seems in some ways improbable, maybe even impossible. I mean, we still believe in Jesus at some level, but sometimes we're just not sure that it's all true and that it's all real. One of my favorite Christian music artists, a man by the name of Michael Card, he's sort of out of the public view at the moment, I think, and maybe he's still making music, but you could find his stuff. Uh, articulates the faith so well in music, and he wrote a song that I've listened to over the years many, many times called The Silence of God. And he says, and toward the, the end of the song, the, the last verse, he says, but when you have to listen to the voices of the mob, who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got. When they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to that cross. But what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. Do those lyrics resonate with your heart? Or is faith for you something that's simple and something that's easy, where doubts never arise, where you're never tempted to, to rethink your faith, where you're never, you're never tempted to reevaluate the foundations, where you're always certain and always sure? I can tell you I'm not always like that. And I suspect that you're not as well. If you can resonate with any of those quotes, if you can resonate with the words of Michael Card's song, if you can resonate with any of those things, then that's you this morning. Then I hope that this text will be for you an encouragement, that it'll be a help. It has been to me. As we're thinking about the issue of doubt, we need to get a sort of a definition. And we talked about this initially when we began our study of the Gospel of Luke, because after all, that's why Luke's writing the Gospel. He's writing it on behalf of a friend, a man by the name of Theophilus, who we talked about in our introduction, it was a man who was struggling deeply with doubts in his faith. And Luke tells us at the very beginning that he's writing this book for Theophilus and through Theophilus, all of us, so that, that Theophilus might come to a place where he might have certainty to his faith because clearly he doesn't have certainty at the moment. We used a, a definition by Oz Guinness then that I'll repeat to you now of doubt that I think is a good one. Doubt, he says, is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. A state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. It's that, it's, that, it's that season in which we are hanging in the balance in the area of faith and unbelief. We sometimes tilt to the right and we sometimes tilt to the left. We're not fully unbelieving, but we're not certain in our faith. And we're, we're waffling somewhere in between those two poles. I think that's a good definition of doubt. It's important as we think about doubt to establish that doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. These are two different things altogether. And writer Henry Drummond sort of parses this out very, very well. He says, doubt is can't believe. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honesty. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with darkness. 
There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt, as we're going to see, is what believers are sometimes assailed by. Unbelief is what marks people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and people who have outright rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel and have hardened themselves in their faith. It's two different things altogether. Doubt is what believers deal with. What causes doubt? Where do doubts come from? Why do we doubt? Well, there's a lot of things that can cause doubt. I could make a list this morning and I'll give you a few things that by observation I've seen or experienced in my own life, but you could probably add to this list because it's certainly not exhaustive. One of the things that I've seen over time can sometimes generate doubts is, is suffering. Suffering can cause us to doubt our faith. You know what that's like, I suspect. Everything's going along just swimmingly in life, right? Everything's good. The bills are paid, work is good, the family is good, we're going to church, we're worshiping, we're doing all the Christian things, we're serving Christ, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, tragedy strikes. Pain enters our experience. We lose somebody that we love. We lose something that we love. We become the victim of some kind of injustice and the result of that is suffering. And all of a sudden, we doubt. If God is so good, then why am I feeling this pain? If God loves me, then why does he leave me in this condition? Why did he let this happen? And a flood of doubt rolls in, suffering sometimes causes doubt. I'm not sure cause is the right word, but it's the best I could come up with. Provides opportunity for doubt. Another is disillusionment, discouragement, disappointment. Sometimes we look up to people in the faith, people that, that maybe have been a teacher or a pastor or somebody who's mentored us, and, and we, we've, we've sort of attached somehow the, 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 the value of our faith to the, to the testimony of that person, and, and something awful happens. They fall from grace, or we're, they're exposed as some sort of a hypocrite or liar or heretic. And all of a sudden, we're disappointed, and we're filled with disillusionment. And this one that we looked up as up to as a model of faith is proving themselves to be a liar and a fraud. And all of a sudden our our faith is shaken. And we wonder, was it all a farce? Was everything that person taught me untrue? And doubt creeps in. Sometimes it's unanswered questions. We, we have hard questions, nagging questions about the Bible or about theology, and nobody can really give us a clear answer. And we ask other believers, and, and they sort of brush us off, and nobody can make sense of what we're struggling with. And so we come to the conclusion, well, maybe there aren't any answers. Well, maybe there's no answers to any of it. We start to doubt. Sometimes theological challenges bring doubt. I think particularly of, of the student who grows up in a Christian home and in a Christian church and who goes off to college to, to face an, an atheistic, hostile university faculty that's absolutely determined to undermine and deconstruct their faith and challenge them at every level. And because perhaps their, their church and their family didn't prepare them very well for the hard questions, their, their, their theological understanding is only an inch deep, and, and in the face of such educated objections, they begin to doubt. They begin to wonder if what they were taught was real. 
think another is apparent injustice. Sometimes we look at the world around us and we see awful things that are happening and we can't make sense of why God would allow such things to happen in the world. We're like Habakkuk, the Old Testament prophet. In Habakkuk 1, you could look out at the world and, and we're, we're saying to God, God, this doesn't make sense what I'm seeing. If you're really God and you're really sovereign and you're really good, why does the world look the way that it is? Why is it that the evil people seem to get away with destroying the righteous? Why is it that you allow that to happen? Why is it that good people suffer and bad people seem to make, it all, make out like fat cats and have all the advantages? It just seems backwards if what the Bible says about you is real and true. If you're really there, why is there all this stuff that's happening? If you're really good, then why do people do horrible things and get away with it? You could probably add to that list. But as we get back to Luke's gospel in chapter seven, we're immediately confronted with the greatest of the Old Testament prophets struggling through such a season of doubt. Luke brings back into view for us John the Baptist. We've been studying Luke's gospel and it's been back since chapter three that we've mentioned his name or really heard anything about him. For several chapters, we've been focusing on Jesus' ministry because the ministry of John the Baptist fades from the scene and the ministry of Jesus has faded into the forefront. And we've sort of forgotten about John for a while. And now all of a sudden Luke wants to remind us John's still out there and John's still relevant and there's still something to learn from this man. And what we learn from him is the reality of doubt. He has a question on his mind in verses 18 through 20. Let's read it together. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. Well, what things did they report to him? They reported to him all the things that Jesus had been doing, all the ministry that Jesus had been doing. They reported to him the healing of the centurion's servant, the, the widow of Nain's uh, son that's brought back to life immediately preceding this text, among other things. And John, calling two of his disciples, sent them to the Lord and said, are you the one who's to come, or should we look for another? Luke has told us about John. Early on, we learned a lot about John. We learned about his miraculous birth. You remember we studied his, his, his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, this old couple who had been barren for a very long time, and God miraculously uh, allows Elizabeth to become pregnant and to carry a child and to give birth to John. Uh, remember Zechariah doubting that this was going to happen, doubt in his own mind, and the angel strikes him uh, mute for a season until John is born. He can't speak. All he can do is point. And whatever you do when you can't speak. You remember Luke introducing to us John's unique ministry. We're told in chapter 3, verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He's called by God into a special ministry. He's to be the, the forerunner of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one who's to, to pave the way for the coming one. And he's so good at it, people begin to wonder if he is in fact the Christ. And when they begin to wonder that and he catches wind of it, he reminds them in verse 15 of chapter 3, he says this, I baptize you with water, but he, the coming one, who's mightier than I, is coming the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
ministry was marked by a, a unique location. He was out by the Jordan River, not in the temple, not in Jerusalem where the other teachers were. He ate a weird diet, locust and wild honey. He wore weird clothes. Remember all this that we talked about? Everything that was anti-establishment as far as religion goes sort of marked John. And his message was very clear. It was a, a message of a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He was calling people out to, to repent of their sin and to be baptized in preparation for the coming of the Messiah who was coming. And his, his preaching was a very bold and in-your-face sort of a style. He said things to the group like this, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, who told you to slither out here and listen to me preach? Right? Great openings. Very touchy-feely, right? Really warm. And yet people flocked out to hear this man. They flocked out to hear him. And many, many were baptized and repented of their sins through his ministry. But we're told in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3, Herod the Tetrarch, who'd been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. So John's ministry sort of comes to an unceremonious end. He's, he's arrested and he's thrown into prison by Herod, this evil ruler. We talked a little bit about him before. Herod was, a evil, was this selfish jerk of a, of a man who, on a visit to Rome, seduced his brother's wife away from him. They both agreed to divorce their own spouses and marry one another. It wasn't bad enough that they were involved in this sort of illustrious affair, leaving their spouses and, and running off with one another. Uh, Herodias was also his niece, so there's an incestuous piece to this. So, I mean, it's got all the makings of a great soap opera or great movie, right? It's, it's all there. Lies, sex, the whole bit, is, it's all there. blatant public sinful violations of God's law left and right and all over the place and John had the courage to call the man out on what he was doing probably privately but certainly also publicly John made no he didn't mince any words we're told that John had been saying to Herod so it wasn't just a one-time deal this was like a soapbox that John repeated that this man was an evil ruler and that he was violating God's word and God's law in horrendous ways. And people, particularly those in power, don't normally like to be called out like that with their sin. Herod didn't, and Herodias liked it even less. She wanted him killed. But Herod was, was afraid of the crowd, so he doesn't have him killed. He just parks him in jail for a little while, and he figures if we just get him out of the limelight for a little while, people will sort of forget about who he is, and we'll come back later, and we'll take care of what we need to do when the crowds are moved on. And so when we get to John chapter seven, that's where, I mean Luke chapter seven, that's where John the Baptist is. He's languishing in prison. And he's been there for some time. Maybe months, maybe even up to nearly a year at this point. But what we see early in the text is that his imprisonment isn't in isolation, right? He isn't completely isolated. He has the ability at least for his disciples or his followers to come and to some degree have access to him and to communicate with him and to be heard by him. And so we're let, let sort of given a little window into this here in the first part of, of verse 18 where his disciples have come and they've been reporting to him the things that Jesus has said and the things that Jesus is doing. 
And John is hearing all of this. He's hearing what, what they're reporting to him, what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. And as, as John hears it, the more he hears, the more his heart is assailed by doubt. For some reason, what he's hearing and what he's finding out and what Jesus is doing isn't affirming his faith, it's undermining it. And John is sitting there in prison doubting what he was once sure of. So he sends his disciples to ask a question, the question that's burning in his heart. Are you the one who's to come? Or shall we look for another? You say, wait a minute, hold the phone. This is John the Baptist. Is he really asking Jesus, hey Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Or is somebody else gonna be the Messiah? I mean, this is John the Baptist. He was in Jesus' family. He was a relative. He sort of grew up around the family. He would have certainly known all the stories about the miraculous birth of Jesus. He was the one, in fact, who had baptized Jesus. And, and he heard the voice from heaven and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove. He's the one who said upon seeing Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who said to his jealous disciples, listen, don't be jealous of Jesus' ministry. He must increase, and I must decrease. How did John go from that to, are you, are you, are you the coming one? Or is it somebody else? John's doubting where Jesus, whether Jesus is really the Messiah. How could somebody with so much exposure doubt? How could someone who was so sure be rethinking this? How could someone who had given everything now be questioning? How can somebody who'd given his very life in prison begin to doubt whether any of it was real? Are you the one who's to come? We just see John sitting in prison wondering, maybe I was wrong. Maybe he's not the one. Maybe there's somebody else who's coming. The coming one we see here as John refers to him is a title for the Messiah. We can go back to the Old Testament and we can trace all through the Old Testament how it's very clear that the Jews had been looking forward for one who was going to come. The coming one, the Messiah, the one who would come and redeem Israel. We see evidence of it from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. When sin enters the world... The Bible tells us, and this is the words of God, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the first prophecy of the coming one. There's one who's going to come and he's gonna bruise the head of the evil one. He's gonna crush the destroyer's head. He's gonna overturn the kingdom of evil and he's gonna set right everything that went wrong in the garden. There's one who's gonna come. And he's going to do that. The psalmists speak extensively about the one who's the coming one. One example, Psalm 118, 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. The prophets speak extensively of this, that one is going to come. He's going to come and he's going to redeem Israel. He's going to bring justice and he's going to, uh, he's going to sit on David's throne. He's going to rule with justice He's going to make all that's wrong right. 
He's going to judge all that's evil. And he's going to restore Israel to its former glory. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Micah 5, 2, very familiar. Read this at Christmas time. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who's to be the ruler of Israel. There's one coming. There's one coming. There's one coming. That's the message all throughout the Old Testament. Everything's going wrong in the world, and things are spiraling from bad to worse, but there's somebody who's coming who's going to fix it. There's somebody who's coming who's going to make it right. There's somebody who's coming that's going to overturn evil and establish righteousness and justice forever. It's the Messiah. John, who was once so sure that Jesus was that one, was now absolutely riddled with doubt. And we have to stop and ask ourselves, what in the world is going on in John's head? What's happened to this man in prison? What is he thinking about that's causing him to have doubts to this kind of degree? What's assailing this man's mind? Well, he doesn't tell us in the text, but there's some evidence, I think, that we can draw that makes some sense of it. John was an Old Testament man. He was an Old Testament Jewish man, really the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though we encountered him in the New Testament. His understanding of what would happen when the Messiah was to come was incomplete. He didn't have the full story. He didn't have the fullness of revelation. Like most of the Jews around him in his day, he expected that when the Messiah would come, he was going to judge the wicked. He was going to throw off Roman dominion. He was going to restore Israel to her former glory, and he was going to establish his kingdom right then and there. That's what he thought was going to happen when the Messiah came, because that's what the Jews, all of them, expected. In fact, he had often preached on this topic in his preaching back in chapter 3. He said things like this in verse 9. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. He preached that the judgment was coming and that it was imminent. That the Messiah, the coming one, was coming and he was going to execute justice. And his winnowing fork was in his hand and he was going to cut down the trees that don't bear good fruit and throw them in the fire. He preached the judgment of God that was coming. That would attend to the one who was coming, the Messiah. And he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong about that. He just didn't understand God's timetable. And so his disciples are bringing them reports, and he's anxious to hear, what is Jesus doing? And they keep coming back to him, saying, well, he's out there, and he's preaching, and he's sitting down with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, and they're believing in the faith, and he's going around, and he's healing people. He's healing people and making sick people well, and dead people come to life, and all these good things are happening But, John, the the religious leaders are resisting him, and there's opposition, and most people aren't believing. And John is sitting there in prison going, well, all that's good and well and fine, 
But what about the overthrow of Rome? And what about judging the wicked? And what about overthrowing the religious establishment? And what about leading Israel back to its former glory? What about all that? There doesn't seem to be any sign of any of that happening. In fact, he's being rejected by many. This thing doesn't seem to be maybe going up. This thing seems to be going down. And for heaven's sake, he must have been thinking, here I am still sitting in jail all this time. Phil Riken says this. He says, John was looking for a more militant Messiah with a more aggressive timeline. I think that's probably a fair statement. John had no concept of some things that, that become evident as time goes on. He had no concept of split fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in relationship to the Messiah. He had no, he had no concept that, that when Isaiah and when Jeremiah and when the psalmist spoke and they prophesied of the coming Christ and they talked about the things that he would do, like making the lame walk and healing the blind and and. and preaching good news to the poor, that those things would happen at a different time frame, on a different time frame, than things like bringing judgment on the wicked and establishing his kingdom forever. They had no idea that he would come the first time to preach and to heal and to die on a Roman cross, and that he would come again and bring judgment and establish righteousness. He didn't understand those things. He had no concept of the redemption that the Messiah was going to purchase through his death. Even though it was all there in the Old Testament, it wasn't something that they fully had put the pieces together on. And John clearly hadn't understood that he's coming to die for sinners first. He didn't know that. He had no concept of the church age, this, this season of time between the first and second coming of Christ when, when God was going to turn his attention away from Israel and turn it toward the Gentiles and bring the gospel to the world, to people of every tribe and tongue and nation. He had no idea that there was going to be these time frame gaps. He expected, like every Jew, that it was going to happen all at once when the Messiah showed up. And so when he didn't hear any of that stuff happening, when it didn't seem like Jesus was establishing his kingdom, when it didn't seem like he was doing anything to overthrow Rome, when he let the Pharisees and Sadducees go about their merry, vile business, when it seemed like people were rejecting him and he was heading toward death, not a throne, John began to doubt. His faith was shaken. What he saw didn't match up with his expectations of the Messiah. And he begins to wonder, maybe he's not the guy. Maybe it's somebody else. Maybe I got it all wrong. There's a sense in which that is amazing to even imagine. But there's another sense in which that should comfort us tremendously. Particularly when doubt raises its ugly head in our own lives. If doubt can assail the man who Jesus said at the time was the greatest man who had ever lived. Surely it can assail people like you and me too. If the greatest of the Old Testament prophets dealt with doubts and questions about his faith, it's not a surprise that from time to time you and I will too. It's not a sign that we don't belong to Christ. In fact, it may be a sign that we do. 
The fact is, John is one of many, many examples in the Bible of believers doubting. We go all the way back to Moses. You remember God calling Moses? Moses, he's in the wilderness. Moses, I'm calling you. I need you to come serve me. I need you. I've got a mission for you. And what does Moses immediately do? Yes, God, you're faithful and true. I'll do whatever you say. No, Moses says, no, God, you got this all wrong. You got the wrong guy. You got the wrong desert, the wrong man, the wrong, all, all this is wrong. Not me. I don't even know how to speak well. And you want me to go talk to Pharaoh? Nah, I'm not buying that. Thomas, the apostle, is the one that's most associated with doubt, but he's not alone. Jesus said to all the, all the disciples on multiple occasions, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Most notably, he said that to Peter after he's sinking in the, the sea in the middle of a storm. Oh, you of little faith, Peter, why did you doubt? The fact is, doubt is something that we all wrestle with. It's something that assails all of us at times, and I don't think anyone who takes their faith seriously can say, I've never doubted my faith. I've never doubted God. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, sure I am that all true Christians have their times of anxious questioning. The heart that hath never, never doubted has not yet learned to believe. You see, doubt does one of two things when it rears up in our life. It either drives us to Christ or it drives us away. And history is filled with examples of both. But John does what godly people do when they're assailed by doubts. He doesn't draw inward. He doesn't grow into himself and try and find himself on the inside. He doesn't go out and run around to find some other teacher somewhere else. He goes right to Jesus, or at least in this case, the best he can. He sends his friends there. Elizabeth Elliot, a missionary, said this, Faith does not eliminate questions, but faith knows where to take them. That was a beautiful quote. John's wrestling with these doubts and he goes right to Jesus the best he can. He says, you two guys, I need you to go find Jesus and you need to ask him this question. Are you the one? Are you the one? And get the answers from the one who knows. And Jesus' response is phenomenal, isn't it? It's, 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 it's phenomenal. It's fascinating. It's refreshing. He does two things. Listen to what he does. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, bestowed sight. Did you catch that? Get the picture. These guys come to Jesus, and they find him. Jesus, Jesus, John sent us, and he wants to know something really important. Are you the one, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus hears their question, Maybe he nods, maybe he smiles, but he doesn't say anything immediately. What does he do? He says, oh, I'll get back to you in a minute. And he spends an hour healing people with these guys just standing there with their question dangling in the air. I think that's funny. I don't know if you think that's funny. Oh, hang on, guys. I know you got a question, but I'm busy right now. Hang tight for just a second. I've got some things to do. And lets them sit for an hour while he heals people. And then after the hour's up, he turns back to them and he says, go back to John. And you go tell him what you've seen and what you've heard. 
The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. What a beautiful response. He doesn't chastise the disciples for their questions. He doesn't demean John for his doubt. He actually embraces the question. And he answers it in a very robust and clear way for John. He doesn't clear up all the questions and he doesn't clear up all the mystery. But he gives John exactly what John needs to deal with his lingering doubts. It's beautiful. After giving these men a, a visual display of his ministry work, he gives them that message to go and take back to John. And that message is very clear. John would have understood those words that Jesus said as direct correlations to Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Uh, John was a man who knew the Old Testament. He was very well acquainted with Old Testament messianic prophecy, particularly that of Isaiah, for sure. And if you looked at Isaiah 35... And you look at Isaiah 61, just write those down and, and look at them later. You'll see that the words that Jesus uses here, go tell John what you've seen, are words that come straight out of these messianic prophecies. Isaiah 35, in the middle of it, he will come and save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man leap like a deer. Isaiah 61 the Lord has anointed me, the Messiah is speaking here, to bring good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted. All of this is the coming one's work. And he's saying to John, John, all these things that the Messiah was to do, that you know, I'm doing them. That's what I'm doing. And your guys just saw it. It's fact. The fact that it isn't all working out the way you thought it would is another issue. Just because you don't understand the big picture and you don't have all the questions that are in your heart answered, that's okay. But here are the facts that you need to know. The things that the Messiah and the coming one are supposed to do, I'm doing them right now. That's his way of saying, I'm the man. I'm the man, John. And what he doesn't do, he doesn't answer all John's questions. He doesn't explain to him that the vengeance and the judgment is coming later. He doesn't explain to him the gap in time. He doesn't even go there because he doesn't need to. His goal is not to clear up all the mystery. His goal is to bolster this man's doubting faith. And he gives him exactly what he needs in that moment. I find Jesus' response so fascinating and refreshing because it's so countercultural, I think, to how the church today often engages people who are struggling with doubt. I think too often today, the church does not receive doubt very well. 
when someone comes along and has the courage to, to, to say things like, hey, I'm, I'm really struggling to believe, or, or when someone opens up and says, you know, I've always believed what the Bible says, but now I'm questioning things, and I'm, I'm just not sure that I embrace all this, and I'm not sure that it's all true. Too often, sadly too often, the church creates a culture where that just isn't welcomed, where that kind of thing is discouraged, or it's written off as a sign of shallowness or immaturity, and people who have questions are treated like heretics. Or they're just told things like, you just need more faith, or, 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 or just sort of pious generalities. Well, you just, you know, I, I understand all that. You just need to look to Jesus. Or just, just be quiet and believe like the rest of us. It's not how Jesus engages doubt ever. He's compassionate toward the doubting. He's compassionate toward his doubting prophet who once said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and now says, I don't even know if you're the man. And he answers him gently. And he answers him with biblical fact. And he says, John, blessed are those who don't stumble over this. It's his way of saying, John, there's a special blessing for those who can deal with the facts as they see them and embrace me by faith and aren't tripped up by the things that they don't fully understand. John, there's a blessing that comes with faith. And part of faith is there are things that you know and there are things that you don't know. John, stake your anchor on the things that you know. And don't get tripped up by the things that you can't explain. I am who I said I am. I'm doing the things the Messiah is supposed to do. Just because you don't understand it, just because you have expectations that are unmet, doesn't mean it isn't true. Hold on to your faith, man. Don't you find that refreshing? So what do you do? when doubts arise? What do you and I do when, when we go through these seasons like John goes through? When suffering or some kind of theological challenge or whether some sort of unmet expectation in our life or something else comes up and it causes us to begin to doubt, what do we do? We do what John did. We, we run to Jesus and we bring our questions and we bring our doubts to him and we lay them out at his feet and say, here's where I am. I don't get it. I'm doubting, I'm questioning, I used to think this and I used to believe this, but right now, you know what, I'm just not so sure. And we honestly open our heart up to him. You may remember this little scene, I know our time is running up here, but in Mark chapter nine, when Jesus encounters this man whose son is demon-possessed, the demon has, has so dominated this young man's life that he, he has total control over his bodily functions. He's throwing him down into the fire and he's throwing him down in the water trying to kill him by drowning him. And it's been going on since his childhood and this poor father has been trying to basically just keep his kid alive all of his life with this demon who's tormenting him. And in Mark 9, it often cast him into the fire and the water to destroy him. This is the father explaining to Jesus what's going on. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And in verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And then this father of this kid who's, who's suffering, you know, he cries out. And what does he say? He says, I believe, help my unbelief. 
I believe, help my unbelief. Can you resonate with that statement? Lord, I believe and I'm trying, but there are things that I don't get and I need your help with the things that I don't get. That's what honest people do when they come to Christ. Honest believers come to Christ that way. Lord, there's a lot I believe and there are things I used to believe and right now there are things that I'm questioning and I need you to help me right now because right now I'm struggling. I'm doubting and I've got questions that I can't come to conclusion about. When you come to Jesus that way, he doesn't turn you away. He didn't turn this man away. He healed his son. And he made things right. He did the same thing for Habakkuk. You could read that short Old Testament prophet. God's not afraid of your questions. He's not afraid of your, of your feelings. He's not afraid of your doubts. Bring them to him. And then find one or two godly trusted Christian friends that you can go to, that you can be open with. And just share how you're struggling. Just lay it out for him. Ask him to pray for you and to help. Philip Yancey, I'll close with this. Christian author in his book, Disappointment with God, said this. He said, for me, doubt works in an inward curving spiral, much like self-pity. I begin with a complaint against the church or confusion about some doctrine, and I end up in a slough of despond. I see only the contradictions, the negatives, the darkness. At such times, I need a doubt companion, a compassionate listener who does not judge but will walk beside me in strength. Ideally, the church should supply these companions, yet local churches often react to doubters with suspicion and judgment. More commonly, a trusted small group or even a single friend can provide what we desperately need. Someone unthreatened by doubt who rewards rather than punishes honesty and who can gently bring light into darkness. That's what we need when we're doubting. And that's what as Christians we need to be for those who are doubting. And so if you're here this morning and you're doubting something in the area of your faith, or you're having questions that you don't have answers to or things that you used to believe that you're not so sure of right now, be encouraged by John and be encouraged that you can come to Christ and Christ will receive you in that place and he will meet you there and he will care for you and minister to you in your doubts. If you're not doubting this morning but you're a Christian, the challenge to you and the challenge to me is to really search our own hearts out and ask the question, how do we deal with doubting people? And what kind of a culture do we create together for people who have doubts? When doubting people come and they encounter us, do they find hope and help or do they find rejection in a stiff arm or judgment or a push off? The church has got to be a place where people can be open and honest about their faith and where they can bring their doubts and lay them out. And godly people will gather around and pray and walk with them through the darkness and gently help them come back to the light. Too often, we're not that, individually or corporately. And for that, we need to confess our sin and repent and ask God to help us be a place that reflects the love and the grace of Jesus who meets a doubting John 
and the depths of his doubt and brings him precisely what he needs to come back to the light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are hard things to think about. They're hard because they're personal. They're hard because if we're honest, there are things that all of us don't get. They're hard because they're personal because we all know what it's like to be in John's shoes. Oh, we don't know what it's like to be in prison, but we know what it's like to be in doubt. We know what it's like to be in prison in the area of our faith to where things that once seemed so clear to us are hard to understand and we wonder, do we even believe it anymore? And we all know the pain that that brings to the heart and the shame and the embarrassment. And we all know what it's like to try and hide our doubts because we don't want other people to know because of what they might think of us. We can identify. And maybe even this morning, there's someone in this room who can identify very personally right now because it's precisely where they are. I pray, Lord, that by your grace, you would encourage them and help them. You would help them to do exactly what John did, to to come to you with their doubts, open and honest. Lay them at your feet. That you would bring into their life people from the body of Christ who would come around them and help them encourage them and pray for them and love them and be your voice in their life. Lord, help us as a church, Lord, we pray, and as individual Christians to be people who are welcoming to those with doubts. Don't ever let us have the attitude of superiority to where people feel judged if they have questions, to where people have to feel ashamed of their doubts to where people feel like they have to hide and can't be honest for fear of being seen as shallow or immature. May it be our great joy to come alongside doubters and see you restore them to faith and certainty. Spirit of God, you have to do this work in us. It's not natural. And so we pray for it in Christ's name. Amen.